Coming up, it's all about the conference finals, and it's over for this one team. Let's do it next. Freedom, 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 freedom over fame. All right, taping this episode of The Gray Area, about 2 o'clock on Thursday, May 18th. We are ahead of Game 2 of Lakers Nuggets in the Western Conference Finals, tipping off about five and a half hours from when I'm recording this. My name is Grayson Singleton. Glad you're with, with me today. Um, Before we get to the Conference Finals, though, I did want to go back to the second round. And this morning I saw a report from The Athletic and from Sham Sharania that the Golden State Warriors are bracing to part ways with general manager Bob Myers. The two sides have been reported to be on very extreme sides of a new contract. And if you don't know, Bob Myers' contract is up at the end of June. And they are incredibly separated in terms of a new contract for the general manager. Who put most of what we see with the Golden State Warriors and what we have seen over the last decade or so? He's the one that put that together. So... It looks like it's a very real possibility that we've seen the last of Bob Myers running the Golden State Warriors. And that said, if those two have to part ways, this is the beginning of the end for the Golden State Warriors as we know them. As we have come to know the Golden State Warriors toward the middle of the tw- of the 2010s and for you know most of the last 8 years or so. This is the end, the beginning of the end of that. It's not the end because the core is in place. I'll get to what would be the end in just a second. But this is how these sorts of things do sometimes spiral to an end. Um, y'all watch The Last Dance. I watched The Last Dance. An executive starts to go haywire. People just start thinking, oh, we need to move on. How long? How much longer is Steve Kerr coaching this team, by the way? I think that's a real question to ask. How much longer is Steve Kerr going to be here? But there's a lot of similarities to the Bulls. We don't know how long the general manager is going to be around. We don't know how long the coach is going to be around. And you have aging superstars. By the time the Bulls won that championship in 98, um, Michael Jordan had already been retired once. I believe he was in his mid-30s. I don't have his actual age. Oh, he, he would have been 34. He would have been 34. Scottie Pippen was, wasn't that much younger. And the rest of that, the rest of that supporting cast weren't, weren't young anymore. Hell, Steve Kerr ended up going to the San Antonio Spurs and winning a couple more championships. And the similarities to the similarities to the Warriors cannot be overstated. We have a general manager and a head coach, neither of whom we know how much longer they'll be in tow. Steph Curry's 35. 
Clay Thompson is clearly on the back nine of his career. That's not disputable anymore. And the rest of the supporting cast is either old or young and not really giving us what what we need to have faith that they're going to continue this sort of consistent championship contention. I'll tell you what would be the end, though. They asked Steve Kerr about this, the media, that is. The San Francisco media asked Steve Kerr about Draymond Green. Draymond Green has a player option that he will either exercise or waive at the end of this season. He has a player option. He can become a free agent. I believe Clay Thompson can as well. Steve Kerr said, if we don't have Draymond back, we're not a championship team. There's the end right there. If Draymond Green is not back, this thing is done. Over. It's done. Good night. That's all she wrote for this iteration of the Golden State Warriors. If Draymond Green isn't back. And a lot of the casuals will say, but he doesn't score that much. He's not one of those guys hitting all the threes. Watch the games. Watch the games. This team doesn't win a championship. They don't win one championship without Draymond Green. Not one. Not one. He's the one that makes that offense, the way they play it, in a way we've probably never seen before. At least I can't think of something off off the top of my head. Definitely not in my lifetime. He's the one that makes that offense run to a crisp. And he's the one that keeps them defensively locked in. Defensively engaged. And what makes it even worse is that the Warriors, they did the right thing here. They tried to rebuild while their veterans were still there. So they tried to start grooming Jordan Poole and Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga and James Wiseman. How many of them have really worked out? I We really can't say. We know Wiseman was a bust. Injuries had a lot to do with it, but Wiseman was a bust. Um, Kaminga, none of us know what Kaminga is, and that includes Steve Kerr. I don't think the Warriors know what Jonathan Kaminga is. Moses Moody is my favorite of those four that I just named. Except I don't know if he has the skill set to be assertive and lead a team the way they're going to the, the way they're going to need. Um we know we can hit threes. We know we can do that. And we know he plays hard defensively. At some point, can he be groomed into another Clay Thompson where he just hits spot-up shots, can put the ball on the floor, one dribble, two dribble, pull up, and play defense? Maybe. Maybe. But I, I don't know. And then Jordan Poole has run a foul with his teammates. Ever since he got his bag. Ever since he got his bag, he has looked less motivated. He's looked entitled. He gives you nothing defensively. So it's a rebuild that's gone awry. And what, what that's going to mean is 
because the rebuild just didn't go the way Golden State wanted it to go, that means they're going to try to literally squish every drop of juice out of this orange that they've got going right now. They're going to run this back. They're not going to let Draymond and Clay get away because they know if they do, then it's over. They don't have the supporting cast, the young cast of characters to keep this thing going. I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be shocked if Steve Kerr has two more years with this team. But the writing is on the wall. We are starting to see the end of the Golden State Warriors. We just are. They're too overly dependent on a 35-year-old six-foot-three guard. At some point, Steph's legs are going to go out. And the spectacular part of his game is going to diminish with it. At some point, it's going to happen. At some point, he's not going to be able to run around all those screens and do it for 80, 90 games in a season. At some point, that's just not going to be the case. Klay Thompson is a shell of himself. That's no offense to Klay Thompson. It's just the truth. He's, he's had two catastrophic injuries. He can't defend at a high level anymore. He can still be a capable defender, but he's not the all-NBA defender that he was pre-injury. And now we're at the point where we've transitioned from, oh, his shot's just not falling, to where is his shot at particular moments in time? Like the second-round series against the Lakers. All good things must come to an end. And... That's where we are with the Warriors. This is the beginning of the end. And if Draymond isn't back next year, we have reached the end. Freedom. Freedom. Freedom over fame. All right, let's go ahead and get into it. The conference finals. So the Nuggets took game one in the West, the Heat took game one in the East, and I'll start in the Eastern Conference because that's the game that was last night. Again, I'm recording this on Thursday, the day after the Eastern Conference game one. Miami took down Boston to steal home court. It's so easy right now, and I'm going to do it, believe me, I'll do it, but it's so easy to pick on the Celtics right now. And I've been picking on the Celtics, whether it's on this podcast, whether it's on my radio show. We've been picking on the Celtics for the entirety of this playoffs. Ever since they let the first round series against Atlanta go six games. I'm going to put that on the back burner for just a second. And we got to talk about the Miami Heat, man. <laughs> you know, sometimes we get caught up in negative things because it's it's better for clicks. It's better for social media. It's also just more fun for us to talk about the negative things in sports. It's fun to joke about people and poke fun at people. It is. I'll admit it. It is. But you can't be a fan of basketball and not be marveled at what we're seeing from the Miami Heat. And... They're this classic example of we're going to go as our star goes. Right? Let me explain. 
Jimmy Butler during the regular season. Not only does he not shoot the three ball well, he doesn't shoot it at all. I don't watch a whole lot of Miami Heat basketball during the regular season. I did a little bit more this season than I have in recent years. And I know he doesn't shoot the ball well during the regular season. Trying to find his 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 numbers right here. Shot 35% from three this season. By the way, that's his highest total since the 2018-2019 season when he shot 38%. So he shot 35% taking under two three-pointers a game, by the way. So he doesn't so not only does it not shoot it particularly well, he doesn't shoot it much at all. In the game last night, he made two of four threes. And he shot he he consistently shoots the ball a lot more in the postseason from behind the arc than he does in the regular season. And forgive me, I'm a little I'm a little under the weather right now. Similarly, the Heat were the worst three point shooting team in the NBA in the regular season. The worst. Which is why I didn't pick them to go anywhere in the playoffs. Because they can't shoot. And then Tyler Hero got hurt. And then Oladipo got hurt. And we're, and now you're really left with a bunch of guys who statistically can't shoot. Well, what do you know? In the playoffs, they've shot the fifth highest percentage of all teams in, in the playoffs. Fifth highest. And that's out of 16 teams that make the playoffs. From worst to fifth, they go as their star goes. Their star says, let's put up more threes. I'll make some more threes. The rest of the guys are like, cool. We'll chip in. And you've seen the stories of Gabe Vincent and Max Struess. Duncan Robinson's back in the lineup. That dude didn't play at all this year. Right? We were all wondering where Duncan Robinson, we we wondered if he had left planet Earth and taken the $90 million that he stole from the Heat with him. Well, I guess they paid him $90 million to hit threes in the playoffs. And when I watched last night, you know what makes the Miami Heat so dangerous? Is not even a person they have on the court. It's that man, Eric Spolstra, the head coach. Man, that guy's good. He's good. And I'm not saying anything new. But there's sometimes you watch coaches and you just marvel at, yeah, he's pretty good. He's really, really good. After the Heat outscored Boston by twenty, by twenty-five, I think it was forty-six to twenty-one, was the third was the third quarter score. And then Boston came out of the fourth quarter, quick seven nothing run. Spoke like timeout. Within ninety seconds, he's like, I don't care if we're ninety seconds into the quarter, timeout. We're gonna we're going to write this ship before it starts it starts sinking like the Titanic. 
His substitutions are perfect. We talked about, um, I believe last time I did a podcast, two weeks ago, when um, when the Warriors seemed to be having problems with their rotation. We just didn't know which guy Steve Kerr trusted. We He, he didn't know how to employ, deploy them. That's not an issue for Spolster, who has far less talented guys. Far less talented. They have seven undrafted guys on their on their roster. And they were talking about this on the broadcast last night on TNT. We've never seen a team with this many undrafted players making contributions this deep in the postseason. It's never happened. Caleb Martin, Max Strews, Gabe Vincent, Duncan Robinson. Um, you can probably find others. It was Hayward Highsmith drafted. I know we haven't seen him in the in the conference finals yet. And then you have however however old Kyle Lowry is. I know he's not he wasn't undrafted, but you you get my idea. They're just getting help from just anybody. And that speaks to when you have that many guys who are that ready to give you whatever they have around two stars, Jimmy Butler, who's a superstar, and then you have Bam Adebayo, who if he is just a little bit more aggressive offensively, could really be a thorn in the Celtics' side. I know he played well in game one. He did. But if he can be, if he can take the tenacity he presents defensively and then turn that into more aggression offensively, he's a real weapon. But when you have that many guys that are just always ready, know their roles, by the way, and never do anything out of character, that speaks to coaching in-game, that speaks to preparation, and it speaks to culture. And if you have all three of those things as an A+, good Lord, you can beat anybody. If they get through the Celtics, do I think the Heat can beat Denver or the Lakers? I wouldn't pick them. I wouldn't pick them. But at this point, nothing surprises me when it comes to the Miami Heat. They were the eight seed. <laughs> they were the eight seed. They were the seven seed after the regular season. Lost to the first play-in game to Atlanta. Got by Chicago to get into the playoffs. And then beat Milwaukee. And then beat the Knicks. Team won 43 games in the regular season. And I know you're going to say, yeah, then the Lakers win 43 games. That's a totally different story. That's a total, 43, winning 43 games don't look the same when it comes to those two teams. But the Heat are special. The Heat are special. And we'll see if they can keep it all together after this season. But I do want to talk for a minute about Boston, though. About that team. The team that I was for sure was going to go to the finals. I, I, it was a toss-up between them and Milwaukee. I know I picked Milwaukee to come out of the East, and I know and Giannis got hurt, which even still Milwaukee should have found a way to get through Miami without Giannis, at least not lose back-to-back games. 
and then lose when Giannis gets back. You should you shouldn't have done that. But Boston, it, it was it was it was a coin flip for me between Boston and Milwaukee, and it all sets up perfectly for Boston to go to the finals, and they keep messing around with people. They just mess around with people. I mean, there's there's no other way to put this now. Went up 3-0 on Atlanta and then let that series be extended to a game six where they had to go to Atlanta to eliminate the Hawks. They lose game five on their home floor to Philadelphia and then have to win two games in a row to advance to the conference finals. And then after going up as much as I believe 16, maybe not that much, they get blitzed out of the building in the third quarter and then have to make a, and then have to try to make a comeback in the fourth quarter. This Boston team, if I was a Celtics fan, which I'm not, would annoy the living. You know what at it. I mean, this team is strange. They're clearly they are clearly the most talented team left in the playoffs. Denver, LA, Boston, and Miami, they are the most talented team. From top to bottom. They're a cohesive unit offensively. They get along. They seem to be in tune with their coach. I'm not I'm not I'm not as sure as I was with Ime. We'll get to Missoula in a second. But they they're 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 connected. They they have guys that can shoot and score from all three levels and multiple people who can do it. I can think of five right off the top of my head. JT, JB, Smart, Horford, Derek White, and Brogdon can all score from all three levels. They've got a rim protector. They've got a they've got the most complete lineup left. And they can't play a ba- four quarters of basketball consistently. They can't do it. They did it in Game 7 against the Sixers, which is great. Like, do they have to have their backs against the wall every single series? And maybe they can get away with it because their guys are so young outside of Horford. Maybe they can get away with it. But if this was the Warriors, if this was the Lakers, oh no, that, that by itself would be cause for concern. The cause for concern for the Celtics doing this isn't physically, it's mentally. Are y'all just not ready to play? Do y'all just have lapses and ga- just mental lapses in games? I mean, what's happening here? Somebody having trouble with their girl? Is Deuce have is Deuce Tatum getting in trouble? What like what's happening here? They are firing on all cylinders in the first two quarters. Through the first two quarters. I mean, they're hitting shots. Tatum, his Tatum, I think took thirteen shots, and and, and was balling. Um, Jalen Brown was attacking the basket. Marcus Smart was he had ten assists at halftime, tied the most for his tied tied the most for, in a playoff game for his career. He had that at halftime, and he was putting the ball in the basket, and playing stellar defense. Horford was doing his thing. Rob Williams was being a terror on the glass. They everything was working, and then they get blitzed in the third quarter. Which, by a team, quite frankly, that does not 
have any business hanging with the Celtics. None. The Vegas lines will tell you that. Just look at the look at the betting lines. I saw them on SportsCenter before the game. They were staggering. I think the Celtics were minus five something. The Heat were plus four something. Like that's crazy. I think the line for game one was Celtics minus eight at one point in time. That's a massive line, by the way. For those of y'all that don't bet, that's a massive line. And the Celtics just let it get away from them. Now, I do have to keep going back to this because it just keeps coming up. Missoula. Episode number five something something of Joe Missoula not calling timeouts. He didn't call he didn't call a single timeout in the third quarter. You mean to tell me there was never a point in time when the Celtics were building to what ended up being a 46 to 21 advantage in the third quarter? That Missoula didn't think for one second, hmm, let me stop the bleeding. Or as Mark Jones likes to call it, the hemorrhaging, which is a lot more appropriate here. You didn't think to do that? I mean, his conservativeness when it comes to timeouts is quite alarming. And it makes me wonder, who who are the assistants? Who are the assistants here? Because, look, we know Joe Mazzula can coach. We know that. We know he's not incompetent. But I will say this. In these, in these postseasons, he's looked like the rookie he is. He has looked like the rookie he is. And at some points, he's looked great. Switching up coverages, switching up lineups, getting Jason Tatum in better positions, rolling with Tatum when he's rolling, and then rolling with him when he's not. But there are times when his team is getting rocked, and he's getting rocked with it. That's what you can't have with a coach. There's a coach in the Western Conference. His name is Darvin Ham with the Los Angeles Lakers, also a rookie head coach. Darvin Ham's postseason has been night and day compared to Missoula's. Darvin Ham's putting on a show coaching, and I know they just lost to the Nuggets. But we're going to talk about those adjustments they made at halftime. And what adjustments they might make going into tonight's game, too. Darvin Ham is no rookie head coach. He's he's coaching like he's been doing this five years. Missoula, on the other hand, he just makes critical error after critical error after critical error. Now... Do his players have a lot to do with all of this? Yes, they do. But when you as the coach look in over your skis, that's when you know there's no coming back from that in that particular game. All the Heat and Eric Spoelstra had to do 
was go into preservation mode after that third quarter. By the way, something the Heat are very good at doing. Sort of like a four-minute offense in the NFL when you have a lead. The Heat are very good at that. And they'll beat you whichever way they give that you give them to beat them. They'll muck it up in the paint, get to the free throw line, play good defense. They'll, they'll, do, they'll do whatever. And then they'll still play tough defense on the other side, which will make it – they're a hard team to come back against. Spolster will start switching up those defense, will throw in that pesky zone. I'm telling you, keep an eye on that. For the the rest of the Eastern Conference Finals, keep an eye on that. Spolster versus Missoula might be the mismatch that wins Miami the Eastern Conference. Freedom. Freedom. Freedom over fame. Now in the West, this is fun. This is going to be a series between the Nuggets and the Los Angeles Lakers. Denver took game one, survived in game one, with a six-point win to keep their home court at least for now. And there's so much to break down from this game. So much to break down. First of all, We'll start with Jokic. Let's start with Jokic. I watch Jokic. I watch the Nuggets throughout the season. The, the Nuggets are kind of a funky watch because when they're on national television, they always have them matched up against a team you don't really want to watch, like a Pelicans, a Trailblazers that will be without Damian Lillard, a Timberwolves, even though I know I know Anthony Day, Anthony Edwards is exciting, but do you really want to watch the Timberwolves? They'll have them against Utah. So there's not a whole lot of intrigue to watch them, but you don't realize how good Jokic is until he's doing it to your team. Now, if you haven't, if this is your first time with the podcast, first of all, welcome. And then second, I am a Lakers fan. So what Jokic did the other night was to my team. And this dude, it, I remember I watched him sprint in the first quarter. I just watched him sprint from end to end. And I said to myself, this does not look like a dude that's good at basketball. But he's making the case to be the best player in the world. Hits threes. The best passer in the world, that's for sure. Can hit a hook shot. Has that little push floater. Isn't great defensively, but made a couple of defensive plays. By the way, had like 12 rebounds in the first quarter. Good Lord. And he leads the punch. He leads the punch. And they started off fast. He got into it quick. Murray got into it quick. Porter got into it quick. Aaron Gordon, I think, got a couple lobs quick. And as it was all unraveling, 
I was texting a friend about this um, the other day, right before the series started. He was telling me he picked Nuggets in six. I have Lakers in six. And he said, well, how are you going to stop Porter and Murray and KCP? And basically, I was I basically said, you just make sure the others don't get off. Jokic is going to eat. You know, there's not really much you can do about that. Jokic is going to eat. But you can't let everybody else get off. And what do you know? In the first half, everybody got off. I mean, everybody got off. Murray was doing his thing. Porter was hitting shots. KCP was knocking down threes. He got a couple cuts to the basket as well. Bruce Brown had the game of his life. I mean, it was Jokic, and then it was the cavalry behind him. I was like, of course they're going to lose this game. They let everybody get off. And then that second half came. That second half came, and the Lakers were still hanging around around the end of the third quarter. It was still an 18-point game, but it was two minutes left in the third quarter. And they cut it to 12. They cut it to 11, actually. They cut it to 11 because me and me and a couple of friends were like, let's just get it down to 12. You're within striking distance going into the fourth quarter. Jokic is going to sit at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Either one of AD or LeBron will be in. Let's see if you can make a run then with Jokic on the bench. And then obviously Jokic hits that nonsense three-pointer. We'll talk about those kind of shots in a second. Jokic hits that three-pointer at the buzzer when AD all can do all he can do is smile at him. And then the Lakers do make that run. Because at this point they're down 14 going into the fourth quarter. They make the run. They make the run. They stymie Denver's offense. They get out in transition. They start hitting shots. Reeves gets in on the action. James LeBron is going to the basket. AD is making shots. Everything starts to work, and Denver's looking like they're falling apart. And that and that's what prompts the whole media narrative that you saw on Wednesday with, oh, the Lakers look like they found something. The Lakers look like they found something. Yes and no. Yes and no. Number one, they stopped getting dominated on the boards. That was that was the first thing. In the first half, the Nuggets, I be, the Nuggets won the rebounding in the first half, I believe 36 to 13. Just wiped out the Lakers on the board in a way that I did not see coming. Now we know the now we know the Nuggets are ginormous. I mean, the Nuggets are huge. That's that's no surprise. But we didn't expect them to get dominated like that. The rebounding totals at the end of the game ended up still being in the Nuggets' favor, but 47 to 30. So a little bit better. Now, 22 of those 30 rebounds came from LeBron and AD. So that's number one. Number two is the Nuggets' transition game went away in the second half. A big part of how the Nuggets built that lead in the first half was because the Lakers just, quite frankly, didn't sprint back on defense. They weren't getting back on defense. 
when they were, they weren't stopping ball. And those players weren't seeing bodies in front of them. The Bruce Browns of the world, Jokic, I think Porter had one. Murray had one. Where they might have been, the Lakers might have been back, but they didn't build that wall. They didn't actually stop the ball. And that went away in the second half. So a lot of what the Lakers were inflicting upon themselves went away in the second half. So that's number one. Now, to the point of the Lakers finding something, I do think they did find something. Sticking AD on Aaron Gordon and putting Rui on Nikola Jokic seem to have done something. Now, let's now, before we go off about Rui on Jokic, let's remember Rui's no small person. Rui's 6'9", 230 or whatever. Now, I know he's not the 7'1", 255, 260 that Jokic is, but he is of comparable size. And what AD does, now guarding Aaron Gordon, who's at that spot hovering between the short corner and the block, some people call it the baseline runner, some people call it the dunker spot, what that does is it just allows AD to hover around the rim. Or because you can't hover, you, because you can't camp out in the paint, it allows him to be within, you know, one step of blocking a shot. So it allows him to be around the rim and be a shot blocker. By the way, he got Jokic on a couple of shots. So now, because you're putting him on Aaron Gordon, Aaron Gordon, is he a perimeter threat? Kind of. Not really. He'll hit a shot or two, but he's not going to be a consistent threat. Best comparison, LeBron from the perimeter. So by making that move, and then allowing LeBron to come down and help on that cutting dunker, when AD goes to double, it takes away those cuts. Now you're taking away plays that are big momentum plays. Which goes back to what I said earlier, if you're the Lakers, you can't let everybody eat. One or two of them are going to eat. Jokic is going to get his. Who's going to be the second? Is it Murray? Is it Porter? Okay, fine. You can't let everybody else go off. You're not going to win the game like that. And that was defensive adjustment number one that they made. Now, will it look the same in game two? It might. I'm interested to see what the starting lineup is going to be tonight. I don't think they go with D'Lo and Schroeder, both in the starting lineup tonight. Now, whether that means they put Vanderbilt back in the starting lineup or they put Rui back in. I would personally try Vanderbilt, and I would put Vanderbilt on Jamal Murray, which leads me to this point. They started defending that pick and roll between Murray and Jokic a lot better. In the first half, it was Schroeder chasing Murray around those screens, and Schroeder, for the life of him, God bless him, couldn't figure out how to cover that screen and roll. And I know it's difficult. It's really difficult. It's easy for us watching on TV to say, oh, well, you you got to stay connected. True. First of all, Schroeder never was connected to Murray at all. He was always a foot off. And then he's trying to chase over the screen. No, that's not going to work. What the Lakers did in game, I believe, one against the Warriors, 
was they top-locked Steph Curry. Remember? When they had Vanderbilt just stand in between Curry and the screener. Maybe they go to back to that strategy and see how that works. Um, Which would mean you end up putting LeBron on Jokic, which again, LeBron, no small human being. And then you, you allow AD to guard Aaron Gordon. Now, here's how the Nuggets can counter this. Number one, you could replace Aaron Gordon with Jeff Green. Jeff Green, a much better threat from the perimeter than Aaron Gordon is. The counter to that for the Lakers would be Jeff Green is not the rebounder and the defensive presence that Aaron Gordon is. So there's going to be a give, there's a big give and take with this series. By the way, starting Jared Vanderbilt, it removes a perimeter threat. Jared Vanderbilt cannot shoot. Will he hit a three from time to time? Yes. Can he shoot the ball consistency consistently? Hell no. So there's it's a big give and take with these adjustments that each of these teams can make. But the biggest thing I think game two is going to come down to is this, which is why I think the Lakers can still win the series. Do you realize how many difficult big shots the Nuggets had to make in game one? I mean, they were tough. Jokic with the buzzer beater. Jamal Murray over LeBron when the shot clock was expiring. I think a couple of Porter shots were difficult. They made every difficult, timely shot in game one. Now, you can come back at me and say, well, the Lakers shot 55%. Uh-huh. But let me ask you this. If you take away all of those backdoor cuts that the Nuggets run, which I think the Lakers will take, will do a better job taking that away, or at least mitigating it, take that away, who takes tougher shots? The Lakers or the Nuggets? Who, or who gets easier shots? I would continue to you, the Lakers live on easier shots because they live playing inside out. Plus, the Lakers being the best defensive team since the trade deadline in the NBA are better at making you take tougher shots. And if this series is going to continue to come down to can the Nuggets make tough shot after tough shot after tough shot, I like the Lakers in this series. Now let's go to point number two, why I still like the Lakers in this series, even though they lost game one. Jokic played 42 minutes in game one. During the regular season, he averaged 33. I'm not saying, I'm not questioning Jokic's consist, con, uh, conditioning. But that's a big gap. And if he's going to have to do this the entire series, I think the war of attrition is on the Lakers' side. We've seen AD and LeBron playing well into the 40s. And by the way, I thought they, I thought Darvin Ham was excellent in getting those guys rest um, on, what was it, Tuesday night. So I think as it stands right now, the attrition part of things, if this is going to indeed be a long series, is on the Lakers' side. 
because the Lakers have two superstars with whom they can balance things out with. There's no approximation for Jokic. There's not, because their rebounding advantage dissipates. Their offense looks very different when Jokic is on the which Jokic is on the bench, which is no surprise. Yeah, I don't. So when I look at that, it's as a Lakers fan, it gives me a lot of hope that the Lakers can still win the series. I still think they'll win the series. Now they got to win game two. If they lose tonight, I don't think they're winning two games in L.A. Now the Lakers haven't lost at home this season, this uh, postseason, but I don't, I don't know if you're, I don't know if if you're now going to win four of the next five games. I don't think that's happening. So there's the game one breakdown leading into game two, some of the adjustments that the Lakers can make, how the Nuggets can um can counter to them. I think it's going to be a great game. I think it's going to be a great series. It's a great coaching mat- match between Darvin Ham and Michael Malone. Those are two excellent coaches who are have excellent temperament and have shown great poise throughout the postseason. I know Michael Malone's been doing this. Darvin Ham, this is his first year. And Darvin Ham will teach it with his lineup. He has no problem with it. And you know what Darvin Ham also does well? Calls timeouts. I know it's such a simple thing, but call your timeouts. Get your guys a breather. Allow your guys to reset. And both those coaches do it at a very good clip. All right, that'll do it for me on this episode of The Gray Area. Anchor Podcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy Game 2. Enjoy Game 2 of the Eastern Conference Finals on Friday. And we will talk to you in our next episode. Have a good night, everybody.